Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today was another pretty intense one. Uh, today on the show is Chris Williamson. He is the host of Modern Wisdom Podcast, uh, which is an awesome podcast. You got to go check it out. He interviews amazing people. And that's actually why I wanted to talk to him because he has collected so much information from so many brilliant people about psychology and social norms and things that are changing in society, men and women. And just, you know, I, I tapped into his fascination with evolutionary psychology and I just thought he'd be really cool to like back and forth kind of riff on some ideas and, and really just dive into the difference that's happening in the world with men and women and what it's like to be a man, what it's like to observe the shift in women, the dating hierarchy and how that's shifting stuff that's truly affecting our lives. And, um, and so it was cool. It was a really cool conversation. And, um, I think we came up with an answer, maybe perhaps a solution to all this. We came to some ideas anyway, and he was just really open and sharing his perspectives and his experience and um, also data because he does a really good job of collecting a lot of data points. Enjoy this uh, deep dive with Chris on evolutionary psychology. And if you like this episode, please hit subscribe. Uh, please hit the bell for notifications when we have a new one come out every week. And please leave your comments below. I do really like reading what you have to say, your perspectives, and other ideas even for guests too. It's always fun to hear. Like someone comes on and you're like, ooh, if you like that, you might like this. So share it below. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? That's good. You're like in Austin, right? I am indeed. Yeah. You're, you're British, right? That's also correct, yeah. I lived in England for a few years. Why did you live? Uh, you can't laugh. Um, I lived in Milton Keynes. Um, <laughs> be nice. <laughs> I know. Roundabouts and concrete cows. I get it. Um, cool. yeah, is, yeah. There's a lot of race teams there. Um, so it was kind of a good central location. Um, they got a bowl, something bowl, the Milton, Milton Keynes bowl. Is that another thing? Yeah, yeah, the bowl, and there's like a pyramid there, and the TGI Fridays. Fantastic. Yeah, the, the jewel of Milton Keynes, as they call it. No, yeah, so I'm from Newcastle, which is northeast. Um, it's yeah. where Winterfell from Game of Thrones is based. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, came to Austin a year ago for a month, really enjoyed it, went back home, and then came out at the start of this year. And oh, my God, been that's here it? Since. So yeah, I, thought, yeah. I felt like you've been over here for longer. I don't know. Maybe I've just been watching your stuff longer and it feels like... Maybe the people of Austin feel like I've been here for longer as well. I'm not sure. <laughs> Do you like Austin? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really, really cool. I was there, obviously, a few weeks ago for the F1 race. Yes, I was there as well. Oh, did you go? Mm -hmm. No, I, I managed to sneak into the pit lanes. I got to see uh, uh, Daniel Ricciardo... Uh, go out on his practice lap and I got to see Lando Norris come back in and do his diagnostics and stuff. That level of performance up that close is wild. It's so cool. Being British, do you like F1? Like, I feel like... It yeah, massively. Like, yeah. we've already... We've, we've been obsessed with it for quite a while and it's yeah. just arriving into America, right? Exactly. Yeah. I I mean, it, it's, it's basically football, soccer, and F1. I mean, that's... Cricket. Cricket. Cr no, nobody on. likes cricket. Cricket's terrible. Like, let's not... Come on. Not we don't want to fall out early on. Any... I'm I'm sorry. I, I'm all... I'm, I have to be honest. Although, we did play cricket at um, Mexico City when we were all waiting in the TV compound for our, our um, bus to take us back to the hotel. 
and um, and we played cricket, and I killed it. Nice. See, you're basically British. <laughs> uh, anyway, all right, we're going to start off on the right foot. Which, uh, so I'm going to ask you about why you're so fascinated with your what is maybe one of a topic that you love, and that's evolutionary psychology. I, I, I'm like so interested in why people do what they do, how they act, how they act. Um, so where did that come from? Like where, where did, where did the, uh, flame get lit? Yes. I, I read a book called the moral animal by Robert Wright and it's from 1993 and it's a book about evolutionary psychology. It's partly biographical. So it uses Charles Darwin's life a little bit to explain some of the stuff that's going on. And it was just a really interesting read. I think for a big while, getting toward the end of my 20s is a guy that didn't really have any of his shit sorted. I had absolutely nothing. I didn't understand myself. I didn't understand the world around me. And I wanted answers. Uh, so I started looking to the Jordan Petersons of the world and the Sam Harrises and the Joe Rogans and the Alanda Botton from the School of Life's. And they were great. And they gave me some really good rules to live by. But after a while, I started asking about why are things the way they are? Not just what is going on, but I wanted to find out the, the mechanism that was underlying that. What is it that causes people to have anxiety or depression? Or why is the female orgasm so much more elusive than the male orgasm? Or why is it like all of the, you know, the big questions. The, the, those are the three main questions everybody asks. So <laughs> I, I wanted to find out the answers to these things. And every time that I've stepped a little bit closer into the world of evolutionary psychology, it just, it completely fascinates me. It completely blows my head off, and I love it. Uh, and that's my current pet obsession. So the audience of Modern Wisdom, my podcast, is getting dragged along for the ride at the moment as I keep on finding fascinating academics to speak to. Well, I mean, that's kind of what prompted me to want to talk to you is that uh, you've dove in so deep with so many people when it comes to so many like hot topics right now, especially when it comes to men and women and roles and, you know, the triggering word of patriarchy and, you know, uh, all those kinds of things, porn, whatever, testosterone and just female status. And like, those are all the things I want to talk about because I feel like you've done such great research, but on top of like asking what you've learned, I want to know your perspective too, because you know, being like the host, you don't always necessarily go so long into a diatribe <clears throat> about your own personal thoughts, but having such a collection of information, I just felt like we could have a really interesting conversation about what you've been learning. So what are some fascinating things that you've been learning lately? Okay, so I learned that men who have a dad bod type physique, <sighs> which would be a higher um, deposits of gut fat mm -hmm. um they are seen they are judged by both men and women as being better fathers and you think hang on a second how is it that a guy that has a dad bod like oh the dad bod thing's actually real but it's real in reverse it's not that dad bods are attractive it's that dad bods make better dads the reason for this it seems is that both men and women look at a guy who has a dad bod and they see somebody who has fewer doors open to him where he could spend calories that he gets. So if you have some guy that's good looking and in really great shape, and that man has a wife and or a partner ancestrally and a couple of kids, he could spend any energy that he wants on them. But he might also be able to spend his energy chasing some other women around because he is sufficiently attractive to bring them in. 
Mm-hmm. However, the guy who has the dad bod presumably has fewer doors open to him where he could stray from what is family investment with regards to the calories. So men that have dad bods mm-hmm. are perceived as being better fathers, mostly because they have fewer options open to them that they could stray from their family with. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. So would it be, is it very specific to being fathers or is it more specific to becoming fathers and essentially being a life partner because they trust them, their security? Uh, that, yes, that's interesting. I don't think that this is. I don't think that you're going to end up with women being more attracted to dads with dad bods because they see better parental investment, future parental investment from them. Mm-hmm. I think that it's very difficult to bypass uh, desire, right? Like you're just attracted to what you're attracted to, and this is why when it comes to attraction, people can try and um, logically reason their way in or out of whatever it is that they want. Ultimately you end up liking what you like and it's very difficult to change that around. Uh, This is more uh, other people's judgments of the father. However, I definitely think that there is an interesting argument to be made that um, I I have a friend whose ex-girlfriend said to him when he was getting leaner, he trains in the gym a lot, and as he was getting leaner and getting into better and better condition, that she became less and less happy and less comfortable in their relationship. And she said, the happiest I ever was was with you was when you were fat. And the reason for this presumably is that some partners, and this will be the same for both men and women, you know, if your partner has a glow up, there is uh, something called mate value, which is your own and everybody else's subjective interpretation of your uh, value within the mating market. If your mate value starts to increase, the partner, if they don't increase theirs along with you, will start to feel that delta between you, right? They're going to start to feel you pull away from them and they're going to go, oh no, this is going to cause anxiety, especially if they've got anxious attachment. It's just going to cause all sorts of problems. So yeah, there is definitely an argument to be made that um, some relationships can be made to feel more secure if one of the partners is getting less attractive or becomes less attractive because it is more secure to the other one. What's your experience, Ben? Um, is that really I... In any way? I have, I don't, I don't really know about whether or not what I've done in terms of mate value has caused problems in relationships. I do quite, I try and do quite a good job of making whoever it is that I'm with feel comfortable. So I try and compensate as hard as I can. Um, But I mean, there's, there's so many interesting things I learned recently about um, 
the birth control pill, hormonal birth control. Have you had a look at much of this about the psychological yeah. effects on women? Oh my God. I mean, I was on it for 16 years and I'm not with any of those guys anymore. So I'm like, oh shit, maybe it did make me change. Maybe there's the wrong something to ones. it. Yeah. It changes, it changes uh, pheromones. And so it changes who. I can't remember. It's the person, it's like the girl taking it chooses differently when she's on versus off, right? It doesn't have to do with the guy, it's the girl. Well, both, it seems. Both? Um, Yeah, so typically when we think about men and women, you have uh, women are the gatekeepers and men are the protagonists, right? Like women are the supply and men are the demand when it comes to sex, for the most part. And this is, you you know that this is the case because in uh, gay relationships, there's no gatekeeper anymore, which is why gay men have, <laughs> have tons and tons of sex. Um, so it seems like women who are on hormonal birth control prioritize providers rather than protectors when it comes to mates. So they will look for a, a provisioning man, one who is higher in terms of monetary wealth and ability to gain resources, but will deprioritize masculinity, dominance, status, stuff like that. Um, that means that women who are on birth control can prioritize a partner and then when they come off birth control, find out that the things that they prioritized aren't any longer the things that they're bothered about. Self-reports from women that use Natural Cycles, which is a, a cycle tracking app, have said that their self-rated sexual satisfaction with partners, if they met them when they were on and are now off, is way down compared mm-hmm. with women who met them when they were off and are now still off. And the reason being that they've prioritized for things that didn't necessarily sort of get them excited in the bedroom. Now there is a mediator here and it's whether or not the partner that the woman uh, gets into a relationship with is attractive. Remembering that she hasn't been as bothered by his level of attractiveness when she first met him. But that doesn't mean that she didn't find an attractive partner. She still could have found a very attractive partner, but he was really good at provisioning, right? He was really good at earning money or doing whatever. Then she gets out of this hormonal birth control induced stupor enters into the world and goes oh holy shit i've got this really attractive partner let's have loads of sex so it basically seems that some women had a better time and some had a worse time but for the most part you can have a woman that is attracted to you on birth control comes off and then the relationship doesn't work so well anymore which is a bad time for both parties i think there's so much in that area especially with women i feel like in various different things um that we don't know about. I mean, just even the fact that you're not having a regular cycle, you're not having a cycle, you're having like a withdrawal bleed on it. I mean, women just don't know that you, you know, you're put on it to regulate your hormones. Oh, if you have a regular period, just put you on that. And they're like, basically just taking it away. What was your experience of coming off it like? Uh, Everything was very normal for like six months. And um, then I met someone, I dated him for about a year health stuff got pretty wonky after about six months. Hormones, thyroid, all kinds of various different symptoms, gut, you name it. It was a pretty, it's been a pretty big roller coaster. Um, So I feel like it's, it's detrimental. I mean, probably to what level I don't know yet. Well, it's a massively difficult conversation, right? Let's say that you've got a daughter who's 12 or 13 years old. You know that she's going to become sexually active within the next five years or something like that. So you go, okay, um, do I want to roll the dice with my daughter who definitely doesn't have the same amount of life experience about being safe and protection and stuff like that mm-hmm. than I do as someone who's been around for a lot longer? 
uh, do I want to roll the dice by not putting her on birth control or do I want to put her on birth control knowing that I'm condemning her to this very different, very unhappy psychological profile? And one of the really worrying things is that it seems like girls that are going through puberty who go on birth control because their brains are at this formative stage of development, you can lock in changes to the brain that are irreversible when you come off birth control. Okay, well, then let's have a like a bit more of a philosophical conversation about, you know, I've been thinking about this myself, like, there's really only a few days during the month you can get pregnant, let's call them five or so days that are your fertile. And sex is just something that's just can happen, right? It's just like, you know, it's like tagged as women's freedom and liberation to be able to do what you want when you want. But what if, what if it's a complete, like, cultural reframing where it goes to something that isn't just every day, any day, whenever you want. Like, can't there, I I feel like if there was a conversation and a cultural shift around how it's perceived and when you do it, like all of a sudden, like abstinence makes the heart grow fonder. Imagine making, you know, when you have to make someone wait, it's so great, even yourself. So what if now it just became this really like much more like valuable, rare thing? It would be so much better. Are you proposing that the entire world limit having sex to just when women are ovulating? Yeah. No, when they're not, unless they (laughs) want to have a baby. Like, oh, right. right. Okay. So you mean, okay. Right. But what would be the reason for that other than just for protection? Like, what wouldn't have to be on birth control? Right. Mm -hmm. So you'd be much more safe from a pregnancy standpoint. So the narrative Mm -hmm. changes around sex to being something that's done you know, at specific times, you would now as a woman track your cycle more, you'd understand the four cycles of your cycle. Men would too, because you have it in a day, a 24 hour cycle. We'd be invested. Yes, you'd understand. We'd have to, yeah, because we want to get we want to get our end away. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it would be an interesting, an interesting experiment to try and run but when people want it they want it you know and especially given the fact that women's sex drive women's desire for more masculine men women's desire for more dominance in men for men with more masculinized faces all of this stuff increases precisely during the time when you're telling them to not have sex like the person that gets damaged the most by this philosophy by your tyrannical new sex policy tyrannical yeah, Strong you are. Word. It, is the the people that are going to be the most damaged by this are the women because when sex drive is highest you're going to say let's try and let's try and push this down so that's going to be very difficult but i mean here's an interesting philosophical question right a, a, a difficult one maybe In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Should women, even if they're on birth control, have sex with men who they would not get into a relationship with or who they would not marry? Personally, no, I'm not a casual sex person. So I'd, I wouldn't. And so I would say that's the wise thing to do um, from an emotional standpoint, physical standpoint, whatever. I, 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 I mean, I think that's the right way to go. Thinking about the implications for this, and this is not me trying to roll back like women's sexual liberation, right? Mm-hmm. That, that Not only is that toothpaste not going back in the bottle, I, I don't think that I would want to. My point is that it's an interesting question to ask 
women who have sex with men that they wouldn't get into a relationship with who don't who don't show those dad like qualities necessarily the ones where they're a good member of the local community they've got a stable job they've got a good reputation everybody thinks highly of them you know the typical stuff that you would usually go through when you're going to get married or get into a relationship with someone what you do by lowering the cost of sex right by lowering the price of sex as well men have to invest less which means that men are going to meet that criteria for women if previously a man had to be a contributing member of the society and he had to have a good job and he had to ask for your father's hand in marriage, remembering that a lot of the time sex was held until you had, you'd been wed. So you're not just talking about waiting seven days until ovulation's over. You're talking about waiting an entire six months or perhaps a year and then you've got to ask for the father's hand in marriage and you've got to have the dowry and you've got to do the yeah. organization, all this stuff. Yeah. If you wait that long, men will meet that criteria. Like men will do what is asked of them in order to get sex and not much more. If the price and the, uh, the the requested price for sex is all of these things, making sure that you are somebody that is contributing and has a good job and all that, they'll do it. But if it's being the right place at the right time at the end of the night in a nightclub, they'll also do that. This isn't for me oh. to say women are causing men to be the layabout, useless people that we know that they can be. It's just me saying that there is an interesting ethical question to ask about if more and more women have sex with men who they would not get into a relationship with, that encourages men to not be relationship worthy in order to get sex. Sex is something that drives men to be a type of person worthy of sex. And if the price of sex is incredibly low, they'll meet that price. I didn't really think about men reaching a certain point of maturity or value or status well maybe status but I, I i don't really think of about reaching in a high quality way other than having money and a six-pack mm -hmm. but, but those are things those are things let's not discount them mm -hmm. i think that even with that w w one of the reasons that men go about trying to get money and get a six-pack is in the hopes of getting a good partner right and the presumption is that if i'm in better condition if i have more money if i ha if i'm more statusful then I will be able to get a good partner. Like that's what ultimately it's survival and reproduction and survival has pretty much been sorted in the modern world. So everyone's doing mate signaling all the time. Mm -hmm. I, again, I, I think that there are just some interesting questions to ask around this. And obviously this, all of this that we're talking about ties into the broader mating crisis, which you'll have heard me talk about before, but for the, the people that haven't, Right now, it's difficult for women to find a man that they're attracted to and for men to find a woman that is attracted to them, right? You have an ever-increasing group of high-performing women that are two women for every one man completing a four-year U.S. college degree by 2030. Women earn, on average, £1,111 more than men do between the ages of 21 and 29. What you have is a ever-increasing cohort of very high-performing women. Fantastic women's liberation movement. We needed to have parity when it comes to opportunities for education and employment. A problem that arises is that women fundamentally want to be in a relationship with a man who is better educated with more money than them. This is on average, not every woman, but if you were to ask women, how much do you value your partner's employment and educational outcomes, they would say greater than a man. No man is going to turn down a 10 out of 10 physical woman because she's unemployed. However, there are many women who would turn down a 10 out of 10 physical man because he is a layabout on the couch, okay? So 
the issue you have is there's this ever-increasing cohort of high-performing women, but there are never decreasing cohort of ultra-high-performing men that are up and across from them. So you could call this the tall girl problem, right? Everybody has a tall girl mm. friend. Mm. If you're a six-foot-one woman without heels, you're looking at professional athletes because on average, most women want to date men that is as tall or taller than them. You mm. could see this basically being the same when it comes to employment and education. Mm. Most women on average, want to date a man who is as educated and as employed as they are or more. If you have an ever-decreasing group of ultra-high-performing men, this means that they have a huge opportunity to just chew through this entire market here. They, can, they, they have a wealth of options, so they don't need to settle down because there is a constant conveyor belt of women going after them. The stats on Tinder bear this out, that the bottom 80% of men are competing for the bottom 20% of women on Tinder, and the top 80% of women are competing for the top 20% of men. So this means that most men to most women are effectively invisible, and most women to a small number of men are effectively usable. So are you saying that this is a shift in um, culture with um, pay, with um, jobs, with status, and 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 it's just like a, a sort of like a byproduct of of things, or is it that men aren't actually attracted, or that women aren't actually attracted to these men? Is it something that's just happening naturally? And so it's creating this sort of disharmony because I definitely am very curious about this whole idea around, uh, you know, mating and how women essentially like <clears throat> mate up ladder like laterally and up and men are laterally and down and so i'm like and the more successful the more status the more intelligence a woman has the less likely she is to be in a relationship to stay married i'm i'm fucked so i really am curious about this scenario yeah uh again i, I don't mean to try and put a downer on high achieving women there's no reason that they should hold themselves back from doing this but it, it there is a difficult situation that you've got going on here it's hard for men to raise themselves up because it seems like women outperform men in education and employment when they have the brakes taken off the only reason that we seem to have male superiority in the past is because women had the brakes put on them mm -hmm. if you look at education outcomes in school women outperform boys that straight up outperform boys. There are some subjects in which boys outperform girls, but for the most part, they don't. You could argue that that's due to the way that assessment is done, that we should look at trying to have schooling done in a different way. It should be more active and so on and so forth. But there are huge problems, right? Like mm -hmm. girls just straight up outperform boys. That means that education outcomes are going to be difficult to bring back down without them putting the brakes back on women. But you can't get around the fact that on average, women want to date a man who's more educated than they are. The same thing goes for employment, especially when you consider that educational outcomes open the doors to employment opportunities. Right, exactly. So what needs to change to make it work? Is it a male perception thing or is it? Yeah, <laughs> the problem that you have here, and I don't I, like I'm trying, trying not to sort of lay the blame at the feet of women. The issue that you have is that women are the gatekeepers to sex. Yeah. And what that means is that it's women who ultimately choose the men. Men don't choose the woman on average. Now, yes, there are there are some issues that you have amongst for men generally that the number of men reporting no sex in the last year has tripled from 8 to 18, uh, sorry, 8 to 28% over the last 10 years. So if you see a man on the street 
pointing at them, one in three of them hasn't had sex in the last year. That study finished in 2018 before the pandemic. It honestly wouldn't surprise me if one in two, if half of the men that you see on the street under the age of 30 haven't had sex in the last year. So you go, well, that's not very good. But it's not great for women either. Like women here in this situation also need partners. In a monogamous society, it's one-to-one, right? So if you don't have good quality, viable men in women's eyes, that means that women don't have viable partners for themselves. And this leads to stories about like, where are all the good men at? And like (laughs) r slash female dating strategy subreddits come about and stuff like that. I don't think that it's particularly good for women either. In terms of what's driving it, you have this change in terms of the power dynamic between men and women, uh, the ability to get status, resources, and employment. And this has started to switch. Another element is a globalized sexual marketplace that previously... Uh, if you were a woman, you would, or if you were a guy, you would be competing with the other men for this particular pool of women within your village. You know, there was maybe 300 eligible people and 150 of them were guys and 150 of them were girls. But as soon as you globalize the sexual marketplace, any girl with an Instagram account is now fair game for any guy with an Instagram account. So you open up this sexual marketplace, which further means that those turbo chads at the top, the absolute super performing guys that are the eight out of 10s, nine out of 10s, 10 out of 10 guys, they can further capitalize on their high status employment and education because they can access not only within their geographical area, but they can access the entire world. Mm -hmm. That also means the women who are quite rightly, they see this high value man who is going to speak to them why wouldn't you accept his advances or at least his message and start talking to him? The problem with this situation, when you add in the fact that sex has become decoupled from having emotions and that the sexual revolution meant that people didn't need to wait to get into a relationship or to be married in order to have sex, is, is that some men will sleep with some women without having any intention of getting into a relationship with them. Right. After that, that can create a skewed perception of mate value in the women that suggests, well, hang on, I got this turbo chad 10 out of 10 guy before for one night a couple of months ago. I need to hold on until the same value man comes along again so that I can get into a relationship with him. That's mm-hmm. a failure of cross-sex mind reading in that they didn't realize this guy was prepared to have sex with them but wasn't necessarily prepared to get into a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. So... The whole sort of milieu that you end up with with this mating crisis is a bunch of resentful men, right, at the bottom. Uh, They are retreating from society. They're watching more porn than ever. They're playing more video games than ever. You have a large cohort of women who have been scorned by moderate value and high value men. They're resentful of men generally. They retreat into careers. They work at jobs they don't like to buy shoes they don't need to impress people they don't care about. They commit themselves to a life of career. Not that that's something which should be bad. Financial independence is really important. However, a lot of the time, you just need to read the articles on the internet to see that that's done with resentment rather than with love. It's done as like a middle finger to the patriarchy rather than I genuinely want this. And then you have this group of guys at the very, very top. And all that they're doing is just like completely uh, conquering and capitalizing all of the opportunity that they get from these women. I don't think that it's particularly good for anybody. And uh, that is the problem that we've got with the current dynamics in the mating market. I'm wondering if there's a, a sincerity to all that. And I'm wondering if a man really is okay with a attractive 10 out of 10 woman that doesn't have a lot of success or drive and or intelligence, perhaps. Like, what does a man actually want? 
It's a good question. Um, the data definitely suggests that men are less concerned with uh, employment and education prospects amongst women, certainly less so comparably than women. If you have a, I mean, this is the joke about Dan Bilzerian, right? That Dan Bilzerian spends all of this time with these fantastic looking girls and it looks great on Instagram, but he then does need to sit on a 12 hour plane journey to Bali while they're all comparing nail colors or something. And, you know, I'm sure there's some PhDs in the room, but there's also probably some, you know, less engaging conversation to be had amongst those girls. Um it's difficult to look at the um, values that men have because the number of men that have opportunities to date a 10 out of 10 girl who's maybe not as funny or smart as she should be, or as you might like, that, that's a relatively small cohort. So it doesn't re it's not really going to change the situation too much. You could ask what solutions could men do in this situation, and they could definitely look at dating older. If men, one of the imbalances in that women often date up and across in terms of uh, status and resources and, and uh, education, men often date across and down in terms of age. Mm. And no one really wants to point the finger at men and say, have you ever considered just dating like four years older? Because I'm 40. I get it. I agree. <laughs> well, look. That that wouldn't that would fix a lot of people's problems um, from the men's side, but you know people don't want to give up what they want to give up. And then you run into men Peter Panning their way through life until they're in their forties, and then they're like, ah, fine, now I'll think about settling down and having kids, and that just doesn't work with a forty fifty year old woman. Yes, that's true. I mean, so I don't see how technology and science can't evolve, but biology still exists. I'm sure that you saw that news story about. Leonardo DiCaprio and the age of his girlfriends. So at every time that his girlfriend gets to 25, Leonardo gets rid of them and gets a younger model. And then they hit 25 and he gets rid of them. And it's just, he's been doing this for two decades now. Leo's into his fifties and is yeah. still dating 24 and 25 year olds. Yeah, precisely. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, you know, you're a data point. So I'm really curious, like, what is it like, what as you, as a, as a data point, what, what is a guy really looking for? Okay. Um, in my opinion, I'm looking for a girl who is agreeable, who is um, collaborative, who is feminine. Um, I need someone that I can have a conversation with. I need someone who is well-humored. Uh, they need to be stable psychologically. They need to have trust and they need to be prepared to grow and change together. None of those things. I mean, all of the other stuff, in order to get through the door, you need to have physical attraction. You need to have compatibility of interests and stuff like that. But those things, you're not, you're not even going to begin dating somebody without those. The psychological stability, the ability to grow, the agreeableness, the, and the agreeableness I don't think is across the board. I think that that's more a quirk of my personality. Um, and is that because you're highly disagreeable? Moderately disagreeable. Yeah. Um, and I think that it works well. If you have two disagreeable people, it just ends up being arguments all of the time. Yeah, uh, what about you? So what, what, what do you look for in guys? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
I mean, I look more towards how I want to live my life as opposed to the guy. So like my sister would joke, she's like, do you even have a type? And I'm like, because they all look different. It's not as though there's the appearance plays a huge role. Um, but uh, and I think trauma plays a big role. Like we tend to attract the kind of person that's trying to invoke something to correct and heal something that is broken within us, something that is something that happened in our childhood where we were wronged by a parent. And then we go into our dating life and we try and right that wrong with someone over and over and over again. So I definitely have a type of that until, of course, I've done a lot of work to figure those dynamics out, but I attracted a very similar kind of personality. Um, but I mean, even if we're talking about pertaining to like specifically the areas we're talking about, I've never really cared about that money that much. I mean, I paid for everything in my first couple of relationships. I mean, I was married at one point. I mean, I, I paid for everything. And um, it didn't bother me that they didn't really. I mean, I think now I have a little more perspective and I see how messed up that is. Um, but Why do you think it's messed up? Um. I mean, dinner, really? Like, can't buy dinner, you know? Like, Oh, it's not you chose to, it's that they couldn't. No, it's not that they even couldn't, they didn't. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, situation. that's a difference. Well, there's some interesting yeah. stuff, you know, as you as a high-performing woman with uh, more disposable income than many of the men that you're dating, that's a difficult one as well because there is some data to suggest that if you are uh, in a relationship where the woman is the primary breadwinner, there's a two times increased risk of divorce. There is a 50% increased risk of the men having to use erectile dysfunction medication. All of this, yeah, true. There is uh, uh, self-reports of lower sexual satisfaction from women. There is self-reports of lower levels of orgasm during sex from those same women. Mm. And this is, you know, again, all of this is on average. This isn't to yeah. say that there can't yeah. be people. There are like tons and tons and tons of people that break this rule. Mm. The point is, you as a high-performing woman have the tall girl problem. You go, okay, like I can either try and find a man who is um, psychologically very uh, robust and uh, capable of dealing with me in this position. Mm -hmm. And I am also capable of being, of having this difference between where I am in terms of my earning potential and where he is. Mm -hmm. um, but you could imagine, let's say that there was a, a girl who massively valued uh, resources in a partner, hugely re valued resources in a partner, but also happened to be a multimillionaire. And you go, this is going to be very difficult for you because what you desire and the lifestyle that you've set up have created such a high bar yeah. that it's going to be unbelievably difficult to get over. What it sounds like with you is that you didn't care so much about somebody who was able to match your earning potential, but just didn't want somebody who was maybe uh, taking the piss. Mm -hmm. If you were able to do that, that that's fine. It's about finding the right guy, I think, about finding a guy who can deal with not being the breadwinner. Uh, and that's where it comes into right. um, another element as well, that men a lot of the time need a growth mindset just as much as the women do because mm -hmm. they need to be able to adapt. If more women are going to out-earn men, men need to be able to adapt to this situation as well as women, right? Relationships are a two-way sure. street. Absolutely. I, it's, it's easy to sort of lay the not the blame, but to lay the choices at the feet of women because, again, ultimately they tend to be the sexual gatekeepers and men are the protagonists. 
But still, like, if you get past that, it's on the man to be able to keep this working because he may be able to become resentful. You don't know where this divorce stuff comes from. You don't know where this lack of sexual satisfaction comes from. Is it from the woman or is it from the guy who's resentful? Is it from the guy who doesn't decide to look after himself? Yeah, yeah. So what... um. There's so many different ways to kind of unpack it. What is it that gets triggered in a man? I'm 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 putting words in into the situation, but I'm guessing that there is something triggered within men when a female out earns them or has more status. And so um for sure a woman needs to understand why she doesn't find attraction in someone that isn't successful like look a little deeper honey have a conversation with them whatever those solutions are to rectify that but from the male side what is it that it's activated when y- when he's in that situation so this is a really good question and it's not as far as i'm aware it's not been studied particularly well in the literature And this is because of what we said before, that it's presumed that men will get whatever they can get and that women are always the ones that are making the choices. I actually do think that there's a very important question to be asked around what is it that um, women who get into relationships with either lower status or lower uh, earning men, what is it that the men are not doing? I can only speak from extrapolating my own uh, like internal inadequacies and and senses of, of sort of discontent and stuff in relationships. I think that there would be a natural sense of being emasculated by your partner that, look, I'm supposed to be the breadwinner. Uh, You know, men want to feel powerful. I I put this tweet out from a friend uh, earlier on today, Adam Lane Smith, he's a great psychotherapist, and he said that uh, depression in women, uh, depression in men is often treated like depression in women. Instead of making men feel powerful and capable, they're made to feel heard and loved. Men don't need to feel heard and loved. They need to feel powerful and capable. And the problem is if you're not the powerful, capable one in a relationship, you can end up feeling resentful. You can end up feeling uh, inferior. And I think it, it, it triggers a lot of uncertainty around, well, what is my role? And you could say that this is filtered through a lot of culture. You know, what is it that you see men doing, whether it's in erotica novels or Hollywood films or whatever, like it's, Guys that go out and protect and provide. Yes, we're not killing wildebeest and dragging them back to a cave, but it's the modern world equivalent of that, right? Yeah. yeah. And without that role, what is my job? Like stay at home dad who hasn't retired because he made millions and millions of dollars. There is no unironic portrayal of that in culture for men. (laughs) You know, right. like there is absolutely no, when you think about a good father, even if you ask people about what it means or what they would judge a good father to be, it would be something like, um, he goes out, he works hard for his family. He protects, he is honorable. Hang on, hang on, hang on. None of this has got to do with being a father. Mm. Like the mother would be caring. She would look after the children. She would pay attention, all that stuff. Like fatherhood is a, f- being a father is a function of doing things in the real world that provides for the family at home. Being a mother involves being at home, or at least that's how culture kind of currently sees it. Um, so I don't think that there is a preset archetype for men to go into that doesn't involve protector provider. And unfortunately, there is some evidence that's come out recently that shows that female hypergamy, which is what we were talking about before, it's that tendency to date up and across in terms of mate value. Female hypergamy appears to be going down slightly, but it is going down exactly in line with female-only infidelity. So women, it seems, are prepared to get into relationships with men who they perhaps wouldn't usually, but 
they'll only do that if they're able to sleep around outside of it. And the reason that you know that these two things are linked is because male infidelity isn't going up in line with this. Again, you could Mm. debate the data and all this stuff, but there is a third element to this, and this is where it gets kind of uncomfortable because women date down a little. Women, perhaps, a little bit less comfortable in the relationship, so they try to find uh, another um, outlet outside of that. There is a in-line increase in uh, domestic abuse from men to women. Again, this you can see how this cascade could happen, right? Woman dates with guy who's perhaps a little lower than her usual mate value. Woman is unhappy. She starts to look around outside. Partner begins to realize this, yeah. starts to apply pressure, and goes from a benefit affording to what's called a cost-inflicting mating strategy. Mm. So rather than trying to get the partner to love them because they love them, they try to bring down their mate value so that they need them. Right, and this is where you get cases of domestic violence and and like trauma uh, bonding and all the yeah. fun shit. Do you think roles should even exist? I don't think that it's possible to get rid of them. I think it's very difficult to get rid of a because when you when you think about roles, for the most part, they've emerged from something that existed relatively naturally. In any case, you know, when we're talking about the pr- mm-hmm. protector provider stuff, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, culture sometimes runs with it and and takes the piss. But it needs to be sufficiently believable in order for people to relate with it. When you try and push culture too far, people just don't relate, and it doesn't work. For instance, they tried to put um, during the early 2000s, mid 2000s, after the um, Fifty Shades of Grey novels came out, they tried to rebrand men on the front cover of Dark Romance and they tried to create an image of a softer, more gentle, more feminine style man. They didn't sell. Nobody was buying them. So you can try and push- Bring Fabio back. Yeah, precisely. You know, (laughs) uh, you can try and push the roles as far as you want, but up until a point at which they break because they're no longer believable. Would it be better if we had no roles and everything was a blank slate? Well, you're then dispensing with all of the acquired and accumulated wisdom of culture for the last 10,000 years. That's probably not a great idea. Do they hold people back? Yes. Do they create expectations? Absolutely. I I don't know what the solution is um, with regards to that. It, it would be easier if people were able to start from scratch, but you don't. You're inevitably wrapped up in culture and because the only time we've ever done modern psychology has been during this cultural condition you don't know how much of human nature as we know it through psychology now is cultural conditioning masquerading as natural human nature like you could imagine that most of the stuff that we know and and understand about humans could be cultural conditioning that we've never got to split test this is why it's important to go and do there's the yamamama tribe and a bunch of other um still hunter gatherers maybe like a couple of hundred of them left Mm -hmm you can go and do studies on them and that is the that's the split test it's like okay yeah, does it yeah. does it exist in those as well but yeah i mean so maybe it's better than ever maybe it's better than ever how well i mean if i think in ancient times whether it's roman or greek or egyptian or you know there was a point in time i think in in far far more ancient history where women actually did play an extremely like high role in um in culture, but there's a lot of tribal situations where the men go and get the food and they build the homes and they provide and women are the nurturer and they, you know, some of it is obviously, I mean, a lot of it has to do with practically, physically, like you said, it's what makes sense. It's like, you know, if we're really looking at it from a basic standpoint, it's like, I'm not going to go slay the dragon. Like if I have someone that's 
much taller and stronger than me, that would make sense. So there's much more equality going on for things in the world. So in some sense, it's better than ever. I would say that it's difficult to go back in time and, and find a, an era where humans haven't been as safe, secure, uh, comfortable right. as they are now. Right. The problem the problem that you have is that comfort is not necessarily what makes people happy, that um, we are living the most comfortable and secure life ever, but we're also living a life which is the least like the one that we grew up in ancestrally. Mm-hmm. You're spending less time outside, you're spending less time in groups, you're spending less time around partners and potential partners, less time under the sunshine, in nature, mm-hmm. you're eating more processed foods, you're drinking less water, or, you know, just pick the the thing that would have been adaptively used for a very, very long time to have a good life for your ancestors. And most of them have been worked out. Our sleeping environments are different. Our sleep and wake cycles are different. The way that we consume food and water is different. The type of substances that go into our bodies, you know, just everything is very, very different. Mm -hmm. When you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, at the bottom, food, safety, security, shelter, so on and so forth. Having an existential crisis that a lot of people go through, why am I here? What is the reason for this? Should I get into a relationship or move to another country, start a family, have a career? These are very luxurious problems to have. They don't make them any less painful when we face them. But Mm -hmm. the fact that you have the opportunity to ask this question is a byproduct of the fact that life is so good for us at the moment. But that doesn't make dealing with an existential crisis any more enjoyable. It still sucks. It's still really, really painful. But what do you want to do? You want to say, let's roll back all of the advances that we've had in medicine and in climate control and everything in order for us to live a life which might be completely brutal and at the mercy of the wilderness, but at least I wouldn't deal with my existential crisis anymore. That's also probably not a particularly good position to be in. Makes me ask a question that's kind of just more of a simple, broad, well, it's not simple, it's a broad question, but what is what is innate to our human existence as far as challenges go? What is part of this game? Social relationships would be probably one of the big ones that's changed. Uh, I would say the way that we relate to other people in that typically we would have been constantly permanently exposed very intimately to a lot of other groups. Even up until a few thousand years ago, you would have lived in pan-generational houses, right? It would have been you with your kids, with your parents, with your grandparents, you know, in one hut or whatever, right? So even in relatively recent history, things would have been very different socially. Mm-hmm. I think the food that we're eating, I think the the way that we're interacting with nature, I think that that would be what's close to innate. I don't want to skip over this topic. I'm very fascinated about it. Porn. Okay. I had no idea it was an epidemic. <laughs> I have a funny porn story. I was asked by this friend, what's your favorite porn search? It was like sitting at a dinner with another friend and it was two girls and a guy. And he's like, what's your favorite search engine for porn? And I was like, like in Google? And he was like, no. He's like, do you not watch porn? I'm like, no. And so I was proceeded to then go watch two girls in a cup. And of course I never watched again. I had no, I had no idea that every guy watched it and lots of girls watch it. I just didn't. I, I did. Where does this come from? And, you know, I joke, I'm like, you know, girls don't act like that. Like if guys start watching that young, like there is not much about that. That's real. Why do you think that you don't watch porn? It's so fake. 
I mean, it's not that I haven't seen moments of it, of course, but it's so fake. There's nothing about it that um, is real. It's raunchy. It's um, not practical. It doesn't feel good for that long. There's no way. Um, <laughs> it's disrespectful in some cases. Do you read like erotica or no. listen to erotic books instead? Okay, right. Well, I think that porn generally is very novel that a man can see more naked women in a day than he would have seen in his lifetime previously. Again, we're talking about a, a maladaption. We're unfit for purpose ancestrally with what we are used to, to what we can have access to now. Um, how young does it start? Can I just ask that one question and then go ahead? Like how young does it start for men or boys? Uh, I don't know because this is quite novel that porn has been as easily accessible from as young as it is now. Sure, you know, if you phones. if you were to think about how hard it would be to get hold of a Playboy magazine sure. 20 years ago, it would have been pretty difficult. Um, whereas I'm sure that the right iPhone parental guidance control workaround hack that almost every 14-year-old on TikTok probably knows about, they can probably get access to whatever it is that they want. Um, so there's probably a ton of data that needs to be mined from that. But I mean, like, as soon as boys hit puberty, they're thinking about sex. That's all that they're doing. They're like they don't even know what it is and they're thinking about it. So I I wonder what the long-term effects of porn are going to be. I don't think that it's particularly good. But remember what we said earlier on about that group of men that are retreating from society into porn and video games, yeah. right? Yeah. There's something called young male syndrome and what that refers to is typically in a society where there is a surplus of young unmarried men uh, you get instability. You can imagine why, because these guys have no ties to the local community. Why should I behave? Why shouldn't I run around and cause havoc and push over granny? Like, why shouldn't I? I can do what I want. Um, I, I, I don't have a partner. When men get into a relationship, their testosterone drops. When men get uh, have children, their testosterone drops again as well. Like That's biologically what's going on. But even just culturally, you understand, I'm going to get in shit off my wife and off her father if they find out that I've been, you know, burying things in such and such's garden and causing mischief. I've got to behave. One of the questions that's being asked at the moment is, given that we're seeing highest, higher than ever rates of sexlessness amongst young men, why hasn't young male syndrome occurred? That's not to say that we haven't had some incel shootings. There have been a few, but they're very few and far between. Significantly less than what I said earlier on, nearly one third of the population of men between 18 and 30 having had no sex in the last year, probably more now why hasn't young male syndrome kicked off? And one of the potential reasons for this is that men are getting fake cues of fitness signaling from porn and video games. Mm -hmm. So video games gives them the sense of camaraderie, of goal setting and achievement uh, that you would typically get from going and hunting down some sort of animal. Okay, so that, that gets rid of the kind of forward progression. Sure. Uh, and then porn is giving them a very, very small titrated dose, but sufficient to keep the sexual desire at bay. So you could look at the men that are kind of being lost by the wayside at the moment as not going out with a bang, but instead going out with a fizzle that you're not going to see. They're being, they're being sedated out of misbehaving. And a really difficult question to ask is, would you rather have miserable men that are sedated or capable men that are causing havoc? Like that's an uncomfortable situation to be in. Um, so it's kind of helping in some way. There's, there's a, it's, it's providing a, a function. And an the, the, 
Yeah, and the question is, does it net a benefit? Is it is it better overall? Would you rather have which of those two societies do you want? Do you want the men sedated into this sort of like gray goo metaverse existence, Cheetos mum's basement thing? Or do you want the guys and they're gonna make less less good partners, but they're significantly more stable? It might have just been something else in the past. Yes. Um I think it would have been difficult before porn to bring it back to that conversation about would have been really hard to have found an outlet that would have give, given men sexual satisfaction sufficiently uh, to be able to sedate them from causing disruption without like the ever-increasing stimulus that porn gives you, basically an endless library of, of stuff that you can get um, acclimatized to. But even with that, you have rates of uh, increases in erectile dysfunction because when men specifically watch porn, their brains don't quite know that they're being conditioned not to learn to get aroused when they watch other people have sex. When it comes to getting one-on-one with a girl, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to transfer over. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Huberman, uh, neuroscientist, taught me about this, that he said it it can cause issues because of how you condition your mind to learn what arousal is. So like men could literally be conditioning themselves into being voyeurs. And I mean, I I don't think that that's what they wanted when they started watching porn. But if you are struggling to find a partner, if there's a pandemic for two years, what Hmm. do you do? It seems, you know, it's interesting for you to say that um, in terms of stimulus, you don't, there's no... Pornhub membership, there's no Fifty Shades of Grey by the bedside table. Um, for men, that would be almost unthinkable, right? The, the level of sex drive that men have is is basically women who've gone, uh, transitioning women, female to male, who go on testosterone, have said that they're shocked and appalled at what testosterone does to sex drive. I've heard like, that. They just completely Crazy. cannot believe it. Uh, I think the... The story was, uh, when I was a female, I could choose to masturbate. Now I'm a male, I have to masturbate. Like that, <laughs> that was how that that was how they saw it. Um, oh and it's it's a difficult one. Men and women aren't the same. They're not the same, and that means that you need different solutions for different people. Tell me, talk to me about kind of the struggles right now. Like, I just feel like it's a really interesting time for men. What are some of those challenges right now? I think. The biggest concern is, uh, for me, is trying to find a s- solid place for masculinity to stand, like what it means to be a man. Yeah. Um, because the media at the moment is telling men that in order to be a better man, they need to be more like their sister. But history throughout all of time told men that to be a better man, you had to be more like your father. So you go, okay, like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be the protector provider or is anything that I do toxic masculinity? Mm. Like toxic masculinity is a term now which has become so diluted. It doesn't mean toxically masculine activity. It means anything masculine that we find objectionable. It's, for instance, there was a story that came up in Richard Reeves' book where a group of boys in a school had decided to make a, a note on someone's phone, rank ordering all of the girls in their class by attractiveness. Now, is that... Uh, like uncouth behavior. Yes. Is it toxic masculinity? 
I I would hesitate to say that it's toxically masculine. It's like something that it's what Facebook was literally built on. I was just going to say this sounds like Facebook. Yeah, that's that's actually the the uh original website what was it called like rate rate my face or whatever it was that yeah, came yeah, up yeah. before Facebook. That was what Mark Zuckerberg created it on. Yeah. No one's pointing at him and saying that you're toxically masculine. You're probably it's saying a lot of things about him nowadays. And- they are saying a lot of things about him. <laughs> It's a difficult time at the moment, I think, because men are struggling to find a solid place to stand. Yeah. They don't really know what they what they can do that will give them honor. It's very easy to do something which takes your honor away from you. Uh, and what we've created is a situation in which men and women see each other as enemies, fundamentally. And that's the main concern that I've got. Like the The big problem and the big rift that I would like to try and fix is that men fundamentally compete with other men and women fundamentally compete with other women. They've worked together for a very long time. Most simp shaming comes from men. Most slut shaming comes from women. Like most of the pro-life campaign comes from women, not from men. It's not men that are trying to control that. But most of the criticisms that derogate men in terms of their appearance and their sexual prowess and all this stuff comes from, the call is coming from within their own house. How can we get a good, high-quality role model where men can, can work out a way that makes them feel honorable and virtuous and attractive to women. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is missing mostly. Mm-hmm. Well, there's definitely a call by women for men to get more in touch with their feelings, to be able to open up more. Like women are craving a connection that goes beyond just providing. We want emotional connection. So there is an ask being made for sure. Um, so it kind of leads me into being curious whether or not uh, you think about even the balance within you of what would, you know, in the spiritual world would be called divine masculinity and divine femininity. And that we all have both within us. And I think that women are happy to step into our masculinity and to be able to go, yeah, get that job and ask for that promotion. And, you know, don't stand for that and stand up for yourself and be able to be on your own two feet and make a good income and not have to rely on a man and not be at the mercy of somebody else. Like there's a lot of that that's okay. So I'm curious if that's something that men in general, uh, I'm sure you have a lot of friends and, or even yourself, like, do you think about that? And how do you practice that balance or engage and activate the the femininity within you to bring that balance to answer the call? It's difficult to try and find a place as a man to like embrace femininity, mm. right? Especially because of the way that you grow up, that it's status competitions between you and other guys. Mm. Um, it's very rare that other guys are going to tell other guys that they need to be more feminine. Like, <laughs> hey man, you should really embrace your femininity. Think about that. 50% Harry Styles of the is doing people- it. Harry's doing it. <laughs> Harry's doing it, but is he being encouraged by the men around him to do that? Good question. I, I, I would guess not. Um, I think one of the concerns that men have when it comes to embracing their feminine side is that they have limited evidence that that's truly what women want. That's not for me to say that that's not what women want. I think that a man that can open up, that's emotionally stable, that's able to actually talk about his feelings and emotions. The world of my grandfather, you know, engineer that would come home and smoke and seethe about whatever problem it was he had at work and never speak to my grandmother about it. That, that those days have gone. Yeah. But remember what I said about the front cover of erotica novels, right? There is a, 
we are uncertain as guys that women will want what they see if we open up to them. Mm. If we're vulnerable to women and they don't like what they see, then not only have we now opened ourselves up, but we've also lost the girl. But you got to try. Hey, I I am all for showing the feminine side. I I wear pink, you know? I can pull off pink. I'm all I'm all for it. Really but wear pink. I agree. I've said that for a long time. <laughs> it's it's a very difficult one for guys to to deal with because at the same time as men are being told to open up, they're also being told to man up about their emotions and that trying to balance both of those things together is is a bit of a difficult one. What would make you feel comfortable? What would be the environment that would make a man feel comfortable to share what's going on? It doesn't have to be with women necessarily. It can be, but like, what are those circumstances that would give you comfort to be able to go into some spaces that you haven't been before? You definitely need trust. I think you need to be able to trust who it is that you're with. Um, I personally, for me, I have, I'm pretty okay at being open with my friends, with my girlfriends. Like I'm, I'm absolutely fine at opening up when things get bad. There's probably depths and degrees that I could go to, which I'm hiding from, but I'm personally probably more open than I need to be. And I probably need to dial it back. Now is openness a feminine trait? I don't know there's an argument there for guys. If I was trying to give advice, finding a group of people, a group of men that you can meet with regularly, that you feel comfortable with a small group of maybe between sort of four and eight um, men's groups in Austin, where I am now are becoming increasingly popular and yeah. rightly so like they really help guys to open up. Um, when it comes to opening up to girls, that takes a lot of work. I think from the girl to kind of coax it out of them to show the guy, look, I I'm not going to be terrified or, um, like disgusted or feel sympathy that kills my sex drive for you if you decide to open up. But we could promise are... sex after if you share. Ah, there it option. is. That would be what, an option. What were we saying earlier on about men will do whatever is required of them to get if sex? If you share your feelings, I will <laughs> have sex with you. Fant Look, I, I feel like that's actually probably the best solution that you've managed to come up with. I really think that works. We figured it out. Can we you believe that it? One. It only we, took an hour. We figured it out. Yeah. What do you want your role to be? I think it's I think it's a great, great clarifying question. Like, what would you like? What do you think a man's role should be? Or what do you want yours to be? I mean, it's hard to speak for the complete collective, but Yeah, I think the collective question's hard because it's difficult to talk about what role do you want without using archaic ideas of what it means to be a man. And doesn't, and we've already identified that some of those are a little bit difficult for men to fulfill at the moment. You know, like I'm, we're not, no one's going to war, no one's stepping outside of their door to actually like have turf battles with the person nearby. That's that's not something that you can do. Aggression needs to be tuned down in a society that's become civilized. For me, my thing, I have spent a good bit of time being quite confused about what it meant to be a man to. Uh, be happy to make myself into someone that I was proud of to be able to tell the truth. That was something I spent a long time working out how to do and, and that I even needed to do it. So for me, I, 
my role at the moment is to try and help people get from where I was to where I am. And I do that through my podcast. I have conversations with people like Jordan Peterson or Andrew Huberman or Jocko Willink or mm-hmm. whoever. And I do that three times a week, trying to find stuff that I think is interesting and or useful and having an outlet for me to be able to reflect on my own experiences, to learn from other people's and to then create a movement of hopefully holistic self-improvers that want to work hard to better themselves, but are going to do it in a well-rounded way. That to me seems like about as good of a use of my time as anything. Cause I've filled nightclubs for a decade and a half, but never really felt sort of existentially fulfilled with that. I loved the work that I did, but it didn't, it didn't feel like I was fundamentally making the world a better place. Whereas this stuff does, you know, I hope that some of the insights about depression or anxiety or time management or sex or relationships or whatever will leave somebody in a better place. And, you know, that's kind of the golden rule now of self-development. It's not just about um, treat others as you would want to be treated. It's help others get from where you were to where you are. And if you can do that, if you can help people to go along those steps, then you end up iterating a society that gets progressively better and better and better and better. That seems to be about as good of an antidote to the challenge and the suffering that comes along with life as I can think of. Like, you're going to go through some hard things. Stuff's going to suck for maybe quite a long time. But if you come out on the other side and you can help people to get past the pitfalls that you nearly fell in, that's the biggest middle finger that you can give to any of the challenges that you have, because not only did it get you, it didn't get you. And you're going to make sure that it doesn't get other people as well. Mm. That seems like a good use of my time. What do you think a female role should be then? Like what I heard you say is you want to help, right? That's a, that's a Mm -hmm. masculine trait. Like I want to inspire. I want to lead. What do you think a future role, like the moving into this new phase? Yeah. Women have got more integrating to do than men. I think. Um, because they have more opportunities. Integrating what? Women have never had to make a choice between a career and a family before. This is a very novel situation, right? And that's because you very rarely would have had a career. Now you have a choice. Okay. Like men have had to make choices between like fatherhood and career, sacrifice, all that sort of stuff for a very long time. For the first time. (laughs) Missing whatever it is because they're away supporting the family monetarily. Um, it's a novel challenge for women that they need to do a lot of work to try and get through. Like I don't, I don't envy the challenge that women have. Like I really, really don't. Do you want to be financially at the mercy of your partner or do you want to delay starting a family? Like that's a really rough question, super rough. And I, there's no existing archetypes that women can lean into Mm-hmm. To go, oh, well, you know, the, the, the classic story of whatever, somebody, of this lady from the 2000 BC, and she went through these trials and tribulations, but she managed to balance her law degree with keeping the family going. Like it, it's, it's a very novel challenge that women are facing. I think that the number of different directions women can go in provides a lot of challenges, but can be pretty inspiring because you now have generations of young girls growing up to be able to do different things than their parents could have done. I would like to say that a nurturing role, this doesn't necessarily mean staying at home and being with the family, but nurturing um, 
members within a team. Like there is embodied feminine wisdom that at the moment is being thrown out. It's like anything that sounds like caring or nurturing or uh, interpersonal love, all of that kind of feels like archaic old misogynistic version of what women should be. Mm. But fundamentally, that's one of the strongest capacities that women have. Like if you have a woman in a company that's in a, a high powered position, that is a skill that she should be leveraging in order to make herself more effective as an exec, to make the business run more smoothly because the guys are at a disadvantage when it comes to that. That is her competitive advantage to use that feminine intuition to be able to read people's emotions. Those things are great. Like that's power to me. It's not It's not weakness to be able to use an, a mothering, nurturing nature in praise of uh, in service of capitalism right like it's that i mean you could argue that that that's uh maybe not the most virtuous use of it but it doesn't really matter like if that's what you're going to do then embrace the things that you're good at mm. um supporting each other as they go through this challenge i think is important because there is a lot of backbiting amongst women especially given that women are now competing for status uh and in, in career and education in ways that they haven't done before mm. uh, and then supporting men as well like men need to support women um but broadly i think a lot of this stuff from women is like if guys try at the moment it sounds a lot like mansplaining it's mm. very difficult for men to try and step up and offer support without yeah it coming across like i'm telling you what to do it's like well and this is where you get resentment from men because they go look i, I tried to help and and everybody shouted at me, so fuck you, you're on your own. And that's how people end up retreating. Um, it's a difficult, it's like a really fascinating time for um, gender roles at the moment in the world for what men and women are supposed to do. Do you think that there is a um, more evolved place that we can get to uh, in union, uh, men and women that we haven't been to before? And if you do, what does that look like? I would like to think so, but I, I really don't know what it would be because we have, there, is, there are limits to what we can change. You know, we can explain to women, look, the earning potential of your partner is not all that matters. The height of your partner is not all that matters. The education level is not all that matters. And to guys, the youth of and the, the uh, dress size of the girl that you're going out with, you know, like we can try to... um reconfigure our biological predispositions and what it is that we like want typically to fit around a new culture but you can only push that so far or else you get into the feminine men on the front cover of erotica novels and nobody buys them right like it, there is only so far that you can push it and you can take it one step at a time some of the things that i think should happen that would make positive impacts would be re-pedestalizing motherhood I think that if you put mothers, uh, you you hold them up not as um, rubes that have been conned by the patriarchy into basically being a house slave, which is what some media organizations basically refer to women that become mothers in early age mm. as. Um, if you say, hang on, like this, these are the people that are literally creating the next generation of humans that look mm -hmm. after us when we get old, they should probably be praised pretty highly fathers and fatherhood being looked at as well as something which can be done in isolation of a career it would be an interesting role to try and fill a friend a friend that i had on the show not long ago spoke about what would happen if jeff bezos said that he was going to be a stay-at-home dad 
because downstream from that, you would have a bunch of other men that would think, oh, well, maybe, you know, if one of the richest guys on the planet does it, maybe it's not so lame to, for me to do it. I don't know whether that would work, but I think it's interesting to look at the roles that uh, that fathers have alongside mothers. Those are two of the most important things, but we also need to stop men and women from fighting with each other. That would be good. Um, it's an inflection. It's a really difficult point at the moment. It's an interesting time. There's so many layers. There's culture, there's traumas, there's just ancestral memory, depending on what you believe in. There's culture flip-flopping all around and, you know, women being really overly tough and men being really overly feminine and trying to find its jam, you know, F trying to find a, find a settling spot. That would be good if we could find some sort of a balance. I wonder what will happen, whether we'll look back in 50 years time and see this as this sort of really weird br brief blip or oh. mm. whether everything just continues going from there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know whether men are being overly feminine at the moment. I think that, I think that being, I think the women being overly masculine is, is probably correct. I wonder whether guys are just being like apathetic. Like I, I see more comments now and a, sort of a sentiment of retreatism from men online. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to engage. There's the men going their own way movement. There's the black pill movement online. The red pill movement as well is also broadly a group of guys that are retreating from society, like black typically. Pill's just, black pill's just out? Yeah, so black pill would be sort of um, seeing that, they would call it seeing the world as it truly is, but there's a lot of people in there that are just doomers. They have no desire to engage uh, then Men going their own way is the same thing, retreating from society. There's different factions within all of these, and some of the guys will still engage. My point being that there are more movements of men who are just exiting society. Like, I'm not, I'm, I, I, this doesn't really seem like it's for me. And women need capable, competent partners. How much of this could be solved through a commune? We start over. I see so I see society as being this sort of rolling cycle. It's like there's so much turmoil and challenges and it's like through my head for many years and I'm like just start the commune, just start it up, you know. What everybody, would the commune look like? Oh, it's like, you know, everybody'd live in a general community, you'd share, you you wouldn't have money, you would bring your talent. Like I would say if you want to come to the commune, what is, what is your skill? What are you, I mean, what would you already, be? oh yeah, I've already, I'm, um, I'm, uh, I would like to be assistant gardener. Um, the carnivores don't need that, but there will be some that want vegetables. Um, <laughs> there will be, I'd like to be a trainer and I would like to be one of the chefs. Uh, those would be my skills. I'd also perhaps maybe, let me add this one. I'd like to do the only other job I wanted to do before I was a race car driver was, uh, be a psychologist. I called it a shrink back in the day in my head, but maybe some kind of like a counselor. You're going to cook by day and then you're going to sort people's minds out on an evening time. Yeah. I, I feel like that would work. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. I think, um, what would I be good at? Pretty good at, pretty good at running for long distances. So I think I'd just, I'd just put me out on a hunt. I'll run with the guys. I'll come back. I'll, I'll hopefully bring something back. I don't know how, I, I don't know whether, whether we're ancestral here, but. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether it would be fixed by a commune. I think there's definitely a movement at the moment towards like back to nature, the whole primal 
thing that we're seeing, whether it's mm-hmm. through nutrition or lifestyle changes. I have a ton of friends here in Austin that are considering moving out to some big ranch where they all live and 10 families are going to get together and one of them's a teacher and one of them's a doctor and right. they're doing what you're talking about. But that's like an unbelievably luxurious position to be in. You right. need to have... But what do you need in this commune? Like, why, why would you say that's luxurious? Because they need to be able to buy a hundred acre plot of land. Okay, after that's done. But where you, that, I mean, that's, like once that's you have several capital, million dollars. So you have that set up, but it's 10 families, you know, and it's, they put it, they go all in and they get your cows and you get your things and your sheep and your, and your wood and whatever, you know, hammer and nails. And you, you know you got. It sounds lovely. Once, hey, I'm. I, it sounds fantastic. But you don't need money. You just need your skills, and you ever everybody brings what they can. And you know maybe it's you know maybe there's still some money left over, and you need to go to town for various different things. But you know, generally speaking, it's sort of this. But I see it being something where okay, let's just say hypothetically it works. Like this group starts, and then more people come in, and people start having kids, and you know this thing builds and grows. And then all of a sudden, it's like there's adjacent villages and they're kind of everybody, you know, now you have like little towns and it's getting quite big. And then you're like, man, we kind of need someone in charge because, you know. You're just restarting um, society here. You're restarting society, (laughs) essentially. That's what I'm saying. It's just this rolling societal loop that happens, whether it's that way or through catastrophes. Like it all ends up going the same way because ultimately – at a fundamental level, like greed takes over and ego still exists. And like, you can't, I, I, and I really wonder, these are the things that go on in my head. I really wonder if that's just fundamental to being a human in this, you know, time space reality that we're experiencing. Is this just part of this reality that we cannot escape? So it's like, how do you just make peace with it? I do think that a ton of those dynamics are just inbuilt. Yeah. I think that I think that that's just a a function of having this particular psychological biological makeup and when you put humans into groups of 10 that happens and 150 that happens and 10,000 that happens mm-hmm. and 8 billion you get Elon Musk, right? Like this is the incentives are not going to change until the biology changes. And what you do is you try and have social structures like laws you know, that impose the way that people behave. Right. Uh, or you can have a surveillance state like the CCP and you can see if that works. So there are a bunch of different solutions that people are trying to find in order to come up with with a, uh, an answer to this. But I do think you're right. You know, if you decided to go total scorched earth, all technology is finished um, and there is a million people left on the planet scattered across the world and no recorded history, I think in... 20,000 years, you see something that looks an awful lot like what we have now. Like, it's the same dynamics. Evolution moves so slowly, and people are going to want power when it's offered to them. People are going to want to uh, try and take advantage of others when they can. I think fundamentally this is why I, I admire but think it's ultimately fruitless for people who emotionally get very caught up in big picture problems. Like, you can only impact yourself and your immediate surroundings. And if you start mm-hmm. to try and take huge, huge problems on on yourself without it being a part of a big team, you're just asking for personal turmoil because it's you against the world. And mm-hmm. you, 
that there aren't things as far as I can see that you can do until you start to leverage your reach, your um, efforts by bringing other people in. But yeah, maybe, maybe we just do the commune. Where would you have it? Well, that's a great question. It would probably need to be somewhere where you could have crops all year. So somewhere like, I mean, Arizona would be tough. Probably Texas is a candidate. Probably Florida is a candidate. Or fuck it, Costa Rica. There's I'm a down lot to Costa people. Rica. I'll do it. I'll do it if you do Costa Rica. Yeah, there's actually that's there's a lot of people doing that. I actually just spoke to someone last night that's kind of starting a miniature version. Well, there's a bunch of um, I don't know what you call them, like crypto community uh, people yeah. that decide to start up these weird, weird groups of completely detached from the rest of society. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's what we're both headed for. Maybe that's what. Um, our future has in store. <laughs> Maybe if all of that exists, if all of this is just part of our reality, then what is what is the value of our conversation here today? What is the point of this? Why why what's the point of bullshitting about all this? What can what add value are we having? Well, I enjoyed it. I did too. There's been some enjoyment, and hopefully, people that have listened have as well. The easiest heuristic I can come up with to work out whether or not you've lived a good life is one in retrospect that you're glad that you lived. Like if you look back on your life and you think, yeah, like I'm glad with how I spent my time mm. and you go, well, oh, I can't do that until I'm nearly at the end of my life. And you go, no, you can, because each week you can look back at how you spent your last week and assess whether or not the things that you did are something that you were happy you did. I'm happy that I spent the last 90 minutes speaking to you. Like that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's a good use of my time. And as long as you continue to assess and be intentional with the way that you move forward, I don't think that you're going to encounter too many problems. There are things that are outside of your control, but they're outside of your control. So you don't need to worry about them. And there are things that are within your control. And if you learn from the mistakes and the successes that you have, then you should be able to keep on moving forward effectively. Um, what's the point to all of it is a, a question bigger than I can answer. But doing stuff that you think is worthwhile and that you don't regret afterward is probably a pretty good start. It's a great answer. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.